Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome uh, to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Miriam Shawley Schultz. I'm one of the hosts of this channel. I'm very, very happy to welcome Max Kaiser to the show today. Um, Max completed his PhD at the University of Melbourne, um, Australia, and is the author of Jewish Antifascism and the False Promise of Settler Colonialism. The book came out in 2022 with Palgrave. And Max's research on Jewish antifascism is also published in Transnational Voices of Australia's Migrant and Minority Press, edited by Catherine Dewhurst and Richard Scully, um, in the New Theatre, edited by Lisa Milner, in Labour History, Fascism, Journal of Comparative Fascist Studies, and the Journal of Modern Jewish Studies. Other writings have been published in Overland and Jacobin magazines. <clears throat> Jewish Antifascism and the False Promise of Settler Colonialism um, is a really deeply researched, very, very exciting and important new study about the emergence of transnational Jewish antifascism in Australia and its complex political ethic um, of Holocaust memorialization, one that was both multidirectional in nature and geared towards radical social change and political solidarity with other oppressed groups. And to me, it is also a very timely study. Um, not only does the politics the book recovers present a challenge to global capitalism, colonialism, and white supremacy, um, in this dire moment we find ourselves in, it seems almost mandatory to revisit alternative traditions of um, Jewish left politics when the notion that Zionism might be the only acceptable political response to anti-Semitism is so clearly obsolete. So, yeah, I'm very excited to discuss this book today. Hi, Max. Wonderful to have you and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Miriam. Sure. Um, so let's start. You start the introduction by stating that Jewish antifascism and the false promise of settler colonialism is a partisan history. And I was just curious. So how did you come to write this book? Why did you deem it necessary to out yourself? as it were, your partisanship, and how did it inform your writing? Um, yeah, great question. I started off this research thinking that it was going to be a sort of multi-decades history of Australian Jewish political history in Australia and how it was... Uh, basically how Australian Jews fit into Australian multiculturalism through the entire second half of the 20th century. And then when I actually got to the archives and started looking at newspapers and magazines um, and, you know, I started in the in the um, early 50s, I basically never left that period because I, because I, uh, I, I, I discovered... 
uh, an org- I didn't discover an organization, but I got very interested in an organization called the Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism, which is established in um, Melbourne in the in the forties, in the mid forties, and um, basically. I knew about this organization, sort of the outline definitely has been written about before, but and I also knew that my grandfather was involved to a certain extent. But when I actually started looking through everything, I found out that he was very involved um, and that he was the editor of this, um, the Melbourne editor of this Jewish anti-fascist magazine called Unity Magazine. Um, and I found out that basically there was a lot about the ideas and like the intellectual and cultural history of Jewish anti-fascism in Australia that had not been explored. There'd been sort of outlines of the political history, but there was uh, a whole bunch of very interesting ideas and, um, culture coming out that I, uh, thought needed to be explored, particularly, yeah, as you say, um, I was doing this research um, in sort of the, yeah, in in uh, the latter half of the 2010s and it was a time around the election of Trump, uh, the emergence of uh, fascism, um, a sort of street fascism in Australia, which we hadn't seen uh, for a couple of decades and the emergence of, yeah, right-wing and fascist politics worldwide. So suddenly it seemed that this exploration of Jewish anti-fascism was very necessary. And the, yeah, the partisan history thing is an interesting one as well, because I don't think I, I initially went into the, I guess my approach to the history thinking that I, it would be fairly, kind of objective in a way I don't know about I don't know about objective but that it would be um you know it was kind of like like laying out some of the history um and not and not having to have that uh I guess political edge to it where I I mean I think if people read the book it's kind of obvious that I am making some political arguments along the way, uh, that it's not strictly a history. It's also trying to bring the thought of Jewish anti-fascists from the 40s and 50s into conversation with current political issues and current um, current politics. And I think that that's, that's what it ended. That's particularly, yeah, towards the end of when I was writing, writing up the book, uh, that I thought that that was sort of more and more necessary. And also I hope that it makes the book uh, more interesting to read as well, having those sort of arguments along the way. So, yeah, that's the the partisan side of it. I can really relate to that and also to um, kind of your writing against the very notion of something like a detached history. Um, this is something one of the the many interventions that you provide here, not only in to Australian Jewish history historiography, but I would argue even like Jewish studies more broadly, right? Um, like the very idea of something like Jewish anti-fascism is um, still not really 
has still not really arrived, I feel, um, in many respect in Jewish studies. Um, but yeah, I wanted to actually ask you about these interventions. So how about you lay out how the story was told so far, um, if at all? Do Was there studies on Jewish anti-fascism in Australia before? And how you challenged that narrative in your book? And then maybe in a second step, just in broad strokes, the larger worldview of Australian Jewish anti-fascism and how they envisioned something like an anti-fascist Jewishness or Jewish subjectivity. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing about when I was looking back through the, I guess, the secondary literature is that most of Australian Jewish history writing from the 80s and the, and a little and the 90s as well so it's like I wouldn't say it's like completely moribund field but um definitely the major works the major research was really done then and um yeah so and from some of it some of it's really good um and some of it's like is definitely it's found it's literally foundational but it's uh some of it's also coming from very conservative perspective and i guess that part of what i part of why yeah i tried to to as you say sort of write against the grain was that basically the way that the story of jewish anti-fascism is told is kind of that it was a, a bit of a weird anomaly in 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 Australian Jewish history, that there was this very popular uh, left wing anti fascist worldview and sort of political cultural infrastructure around it, but it's a bit weird and hard to understand, and it doesn't really fit with the image of Australian Jews, which sort of come out comes out through the historiography and I guess the public image that's projected by. Um, Australian Jewish sort of conservative institutions, which is, you know, very like, it's a successful community. It's um, very loyal to Australia. It's very extremely loyal to Israel. Uh, There's also the, in Australia, there's also this narrative around, uh, you know, there's very high proportion of um, the community uh, Holocaust survivors or descendants of Holocaust survivors. So there's also this that sort of narrative as well that because we were um, Holocaust survivors, we've been an inward-looking, uh, conservative, sort of timid, or you know, um, sort of uh, that. Yeah, that's come out in Australian Jewish politics. So it was really about yeah, re- looking at those histories again, and uh, there was there's like there was like a, there's a fantastic master's thesis um, by um, a, you know a famous Jewish studies scholar now David Rector um, that is uh, it was never published but it's this great sort of source it's called Jewish Communism in Melbourne and that like reading that and reading and reading which was based on oral history interviews um, that. Uh, undertaken at the time, well, undertaken in the 80s, um, and then also reading some of the memoirs from the time from from some of the, the, the one of the key activists, Norman Rothfield. Um, they sort of give you a much different uh, history to what exactly is 
Jewish anti-fascism. And I think that, yeah, the Jewish anti-fascism thing that you may have noticed if you look at the book is that I did not hyphenate anti-fascism. And um, the, it's, yeah, so, and I think that it previously been written about as Jewish anti-fascism, as in opposing fascism. Uh, and I guess what I was trying to do with referring to, uh, with the unhyphenated saying Jewish anti-fascism is say that it was actually not just this thing which was just oppositional it was a particular ideology and worldview um and yeah that was that was incredibly generative um of all these different ideas and um and uh culture and that i think is more sort of my intervention i suppose uh that i think people yeah the historiography kind of understands that there was this uh, Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Antisemitism, it is mentioned, but it's not really understood as a particular way, as you say, of envisioning Jewishness. Like it's, uh, it, it's, um, it had, a, yeah, it had really had its own idea of the importance of what, of Jewish culture, um, the importance of being Jewish, what being Jewish meant uh, in itself. So, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> I mean, it's a start for a, um, a real answer, I would say. This this really brings us um, to the weeds of it, I think. Um, I, I love this, yeah. Um, I'm also in my work, Don't Hyphenate Anti-Fascism, for exactly the same reasons, um, to not understand it exactly as just a response to whatever fascism is, but actually um, a political movement and ideology in and of itself. Um and yeah, that has to be taken serious. That is not just um, kind of a communist myth to whitewash Stalinist crimes or whatever, but um, really important actually for um, conceptualizations of what Jewishness could mean um, beyond this uh, Jewish identity, whatever that is, right? Um, and in, in many regards then also, I guess, um, Australian Jewish historiography reminds me of um, the historiography of um, Soviet Jewry. It's very different, but also so conservative in many regards um, and inward looking and always kind of stops at this this, um, border of Jewishness. Um, That is also a very conservative idea, I guess. Um, so in that regard, I, I thought it was really fascinating to read your work, and it really speaks a lot to what is happening in the Soviet Union, I would say. Um, and I really especially liked also your bottom-up approach um, to questions like assimilation um, or Jewish identity collectivity. So to not understand Jewish people as passive objects in these processes of top-down assimilation, as we might think of them, um, but rather to trace their active role in, as you say, deploying notions of race, religion, and ethnicity in order to shape um, their own positioning within Jewish and non-Jewish discourses. Um, Yeah, so what's wrong with the traditional concept of assimilation? Um, for you specifically, but also by extension for the people that you study? Yeah, so I think there's two different 
two different things. One is the sort of historiography of Australian multiculturalism, which, uh, you know, there's, there was also, also there's was some great work done in, 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 in the eighties and nineties, but I'm sort of re sort of trying to understand that, uh, notion of, um, migrant agency and how exactly migrants have interacted with collectively with the political system assimilated or not assimilated and there's part and there's basically uh some new research coming out there's but in the historiography now we have this uh sort of traditional sort of periodization basically where there was in in for people who outside Australia don't exactly know but after World War II uh, there was that was uh, the, there was the start of the mass migration program in in Australia and it was particular and it was uh, still operating under the white Australia policy but it was migrate mass migration from from Europe and um, Jewish migration was basically basically part of that and um, the way that it's the history is often told is in those first few decades after World War two that basically there was a very strong assimilationist policy which meant that the Australian government sort of forced people to force migrants to become Anglos um, and that there was a very strong uh, disincentive culturally, politically, structurally to maintain any aspect of your cultural identity. And uh, that's kind of like, and then supposedly everything changed in the 70s with the election of the, the, the Whitlam government and sort of the official advent of a multicultural policy. But, yeah, the, the actual history is not quite as simple as that. And it's through studying organisations like the Jewish Council, but also other migrant um, sort of activist organisations from the time that you can see. <clears throat> Very much true that Australia was, you know, was and still is, you know, white supremacist country, and that there are um, uh, there is this intolerance of, of of cultural difference in different ways, but. Migrants did have various forms of agency, and in fact, you know, the the the, and in fact, were able to run public political campaigns on various issues. Were able to put out, you know, material in their own languages. Um, were able to successfully start all these different um, community organisations. So, it's not, and they were always in contestation, I suppose, with government policy but also yeah it, there was sort of this uh debates and conflict within say the jewish community over how best to approach government policy how best to position themselves publicly what issues to speak out on what and you know the the crux of the book is is you know that that in some ways is uh, the different political strategies of various factions within the Jewish community over how best to achieve 
Jewish safety and 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 flourishing. So it's a, the Jewish anti-fascist version was that we need to um, be in solidarity with other oppressed groups, that we need to uh, be very critical of the Australian state, that we need to um, show solidarity with uh, uh, colonised people around the world, and that is that is our strategy for achieving Jewish liberation. And then there became the much more conservative version of uh, how best to position Jews publicly, which was all about Zionism and, and loyalty to the Australian state. So even the fact that there was this big contestation within the communities um, kind of questions that sort of official narrative that, you know, it was just sort of uh, dominant assimilationism and um, there was nothing that migrants could do about it. There was no sort of migrant collective agency. But, yeah, the other point, the other part of your question around assimilation, I suppose, is how it's been treated within um, Jewish studies sort of historiography, and that is that... uh, and, and it's not just in the historiography, it's also sort of a kind of common perception within Jewish communities, which is that, you know, assimilation for a Jewish person means um, something that happens on an individual level, it means, you know, you're, you're not eating uh, kosher, you are marrying a non-Jew, you are, um, you know, in the in Melbourne Jewish world it means you're going to a non-jewish school which is a very strong strong marker of jewish identity so these all these different sort of individual markers um and which means that you assimilation is about uh, an idealized image of what the uh, a proper jew is and you're going further and further away from that idealized image by your individual behavior and my sort of redefinition of uh assimilation is actually to go back to that collective political context so that uh there's basically that certain forms of jewish difference are uh more acceptable to white supremacist australian culture and 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 politics and that part of uh, and that that assimilating into that is sort of a collective political political act and versus resisting assimilation, which is, um, you know, basically resisting those dominant ideas about what Jewish difference is allowed to be and making those more uncomfortable and unruly alliances with um, other marginalised and and oppressed groups. Yeah, I really love that and I will definitely draw on it (laughs) in my work. So thank you so much for for doing that work. and putting it putting it out there. Um, so obviously, we have to talk about uh, the Holocaust and the role it plays in kind of forming um, Australian Jewish anti-fascism. This happens in many ways, but two that you explore specifically. So um, the specific ethic of Holocaust memorialization, which is kind of the root. Um, that you're tracing and here specifically also engaging with the work of Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno. So, um, yeah, I would like you to kind of um, lay this out for us. And then, of course, um, you kind of touched on it already, but um, uh, this tradition of anti-fascism had, of course, a particular theorization of fascism and of anti-Semitism. So I think it would also be really helpful um, for you to 
explain that um, to our listeners. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, let me let me open the book and find that particular uh, epigraph from um, Theodore Dorno. So um, this is the the epigraph for chapter two of the book. The only philosophy which can be responsibly practiced in the face of despair is the attempt to contemplate all things as they would present themselves from the standpoint of redemption. So that's kind of the of that's kind of one way of summing up how Jewish anti-fascists approach the question of the Holocaust and and the memory of the Holocaust. Um. And yeah, the other the 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 way that I use Walter Benjamin in this chapter is basically to uh, try to understand their approach to mourning the mourning the victims of the Holocaust um, and understanding exactly what they should do with with the memory of the Holocaust, what the political social significance of it is for Jews who who survived um and Jews um in Jews in Australia but they really had this sort of global conception of what of what it meant and the basic uh idea is that um Walter Benjamin had this idea of uh an aberrated or interrupted mourning so that it wasn't as if uh, the morning could be successfully completed, and that that there could be sort of a there could be a closure, a successful closure to understanding um, the memory of the Holocaust. In fact, it had to be something that 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 couldn't be completed, and that you would sort of have to hold forever open with the promise of a final complete redemption so the which yeah as the the sort of adorno quote also complements it's not necessarily something that would actually ever ever come to pass this final complete redemption but we have to view uh current politics and our current um uh everything wrong with the world all the oppression and suffering etc um all the injustice in the world um through that um possibility of a, of a final um redemption um so it basically meant that you know the the morning of the uh the holocaust became this sort of place where you could i also um use the work of um, Michael Rothberg and his concept of um, multidirectional memory. So basically, rather than having this idea now, which is particularly common within Zionist narratives, that sort of the the Holocaust ended and then the Jewish people were redeemed um, in the state of Israel, Um, or there's this other narrative within Jewish communities and migrants that, you know, basically it was a success... uh, People came to Australia or America or whatever and um, were able to rebuild their lives and, you know, it was a sort of successful completion of the, the story. 
so the 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 other way of looking at it is precisely that the holocaust presents this moment or the the memory of the holocaust presents this uh moment where we can extend our our concern or our mourning or our um uh, sort of circle of understanding to other instances of racism and, and colonialism and that that's the only real proper response to the memory of the Holocaust is in fact to, to try to apply the lessons of the Holocaust or our understanding of the Holocaust to what else is going on. So there was very, very explicit comparisons made um, between the sort of racism of, the, of Nazism and current events, um, so and particularly around um, decolonization struggles, which are very uh, on the, the you know the, the minds of uh, Jewish anti-fascists and um, the wider community in the late forties, um, but also starting to draw comparisons with the situation of uh, Aboriginal people as well. Um, in Australia and um, to try to understand, yeah, exactly what the, the, the a, a sort of what trying to apply the lessons of the, the, the memory of the Holocaust to a more global universal struggle against racism and colonialism. And what was the second part of the, the question? I forget. <laughs> That's totally fine. It was a really long question. Um, just um, their specific um, conceptualization of what fascism ac- actually is and what anti-Semitism is and how uh, accurate Jewish response should look like or an anti-fascist Jewish response yeah. should look like. Well, I think the <clears throat> kind of the interesting thing from my point of view with looking at what exactly they thought fascism was is how it accords with some of the 21st century sort of transnational revisiting of the theorization of of fascism you know we've kind of had this history of trying to understand fascism as sort of like um you know a version of nationalism in different ways or authoritarianism or um but and you know the 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 sort of classic theorization that you know there was something went wrong in german history and that was and uh, there was a particular cultural or you know, political sort of quirks um, that meant that there was this sort of aberration of German political history and that's what um, produced Nazism. And the Jewish anti-fascists back then understood that, no, fascism was um, in fact a trans, always a transnational phenomenon and basically was always, they had, a, you know, this was in, in, in some of some of the theorization was a little crude and it was in line with sort of the um, uh, international, um, like, you know, uh, communist politics and politics of the Comintern um, that, you know, it was sort of only the, the worst version of capitalism or that it was sort of just a sort of a, a sort of a reactionary tool of the capitalist, which um, I think was a little bit, uh, yes, crude, but they did basically have this transnational understanding that it was that uh, uh, that that it did was an outgrowth of reaction, and that it also ha- always had a racial element, which I think is not uh, was also something that sort of got lost 
um, in some theorizations of of uh, fascism throughout the 20th century. But they really understood that anti-Semitism was integral to fascism, that um, there was no way that you could uh, oppose fascism, not oppose anti-Semitism, or, or oppose anti-Semitism and not oppose fascism, that um, part of fascism was always having this, uh, you know, kind of con- like, I guess, con- racial conspiracism as, as this, like, really uh, integral part to fascism. So they, you know, would have these arguments with people who would um, write in and say, well, you know, fascism is not uh, anti fascism is not necessarily uh, anti anti Semitic. Um, you know, making it your case against fascism is like this too. Uh, it, it sort of positions you in this political field that is um, too large. Let's just worry about anti Semitism. But they said, well, no. There's no like that. That that's precisely the point is to position ourselves in this larger political field. Um, precisely that we need to have this larger understanding of um, fascism as a racial reactionary politics with this, you know, genocidal uh, potential at least, and that is going to put us uh, in solidarity with these other other oppressed groups, having this larger, wider understanding, um, and. Yeah, and the theorization of anti-Semitism as part of fascism also was placed them sort of at a different had 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 a way of placing their analysis in a different political spot as well to other contemporary theorizations of anti-Semitism, and in fact, you know, current theorizations of anti-Semitism that basically it's sort of a um, intractable global hatred uh, of Jews that is kind of ahistorical, uh, that you, we, we, can't, we can't do anything about it, um, it's always going to be there, therefore we need Israel is the is the, sort of the end point is the end point of it they said no it's political it's historical it's associated with reactionary politics um and it can be combated by a jewish importantly a jewish political subject so that's uh the epigraph from another um chapter is this uh famous quote from hannah arendt um which is you know if 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 you uh or maybe you remember it better than I do. But anyway, but it's basically to paraphrase, it's, you know, if you are attacked as a Jew, um, you have to respond as a Jew. You can't respond as a, as a German, a world citizen or whatever. You need, uh, anti-Semitism necessitate, necessitates a Jewish political subject to, to, to fight it. And that was very important for them as well, is that uh, anti-Semitism the Jewish anti-fascist response to anti-Semitism was about a proud Jewish consciousness, fostering Jewish culture, fostering Jewish um, group belonging, uh, and and fighting fascism, fighting anti-Semitism as Jews. Yeah, thank you for that. And maybe to add another very good um, citation from Walter Benjamin, um, this is from his thesis of history um, on the philosophy of history. This is thesis eight. The tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule 
we must attain to a conception of history that is keeping with this insight, then we shall clearly realize that it is our task to bring about a real state of emergency, and this will improve our position in the struggle against fascism. So I think this ties really nicely to all the things that you've been saying. Um, And also for this um, speaks to this futurity that you're discussing also, like building these um, um, links, alliances with other oppressed groups to bring about the state of emergency that um, Benjamin discusses here, which is, yeah, um, very much also connected to what is happening in Soviet Yiddish discourses at the same time, um, which is something that I definitely want to talk to you about. But first, I wanted to ask you about your concept of dynamic futurity. It's basically only mentioned in um, in one footnote. Um, and I think there's so much to it that um, so you're clearly drawing on queer futurity um, from that was coined by Jose Esteban Munoz. Um, yeah, what what do you mean by that? And why did it only make it to the footnote <laughs> and not <laughs> to the body of the text? I think I remember having this conversation with my supervisor and she said, oh, this dynamic futurity thing, you should, you know, maybe it's sort of your, it's a new concept, you should make a bit more of it. But I think I didn't want to, um, I'm not sure I thought it was that uh, revolutionary, I suppose, or that that sort of new to me. It wasn't like something that I wanted to, I want, I didn't want to invent a new concept. I, I just wanted a sort of way of describing um, a way of describing what they, what Jewish anti-fascists were thinking, and 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 how they understood this sort of alternate, uh, this alternate vision of global Jewish life um, that wasn't centered on Israel, that wasn't that wasn't um, Zionist, and that so yeah. So I think the context is basically. You know this post-war. It's this, it, you know Jewish anti-fascism, as you well know, was this uh, was in fact a global sort of phenomenon. Global's a bit too long. International, where there were different, where there were uh, Jewish communities around the world um, that basically had this sort of um, pro-Soviet Union or were. Uh, at least sort of fellow travellers to a certain extent, very sympathetic to um, <clears throat> were to like a, to a popular front uh, style anti-fascism to defeat uh, fascism in the Second World War, which, you know, as you can imagine, was extremely popular ideology around the world for, for Jews. Um, the idea, they had this sort of question about uh, post-war, you know, you could what what the place of Jews was in the world, and very much the question was well after the Holocaust and with the state of Israel, sort of the, the fight for the state of Israel, sort of um and being sort of center stage. <clears throat> there were these strong ideas that basically. Jews should couldn't exist in in the diaspora anymore. That it was too dangerous. Um, that you know that there was a, 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 some sort of cultural weakness or obsoleteness associated with with Jewishness. 
And in response to that, Jewish anti-fascists had kind of like a, a, a Jewish, the, the, there was this great quote that I use as the title of one of my articles is from this uh, um, Jewish anti-fascist magazine called Jewish Life in the, in the States. And it's got a new, they conceived of a new and modern uh, golden age of Jewish culture. That was their, that was that was what they wanted, and uh, and importantly, the golden age of Jewish culture was going to be multilingual and expressed in it validated basically Jews living in whichever country they found themselves in, as and it was valid to have a Jewish identity, Jewish culture wherever you were. It didn't have to be Israel. It certainly didn't have to be in Europe. Um, and it could be expressed in multiple languages. So it was not, Hebrew was not the, the future of the Jewish people. Yiddish also, there was this strong uh, sort of Yiddishist idea that the only way that you could probably express Jewish culture had to be in Yiddish, and that was extremely central to Jewish identity. Jewish identity couldn't exist outside of, of Yiddish language. And they said, no, it's, you can have a very valid Jewish culture in English, in Spanish, you know, in whatever, 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 uh, culture, um, you, you found yourself in and whatever, um, words that you could use to express yourself. Jewish culture was, was, uh, could be ongoing and it could change and adapt. And I guess that's the, the dynamic part of it is that you didn't have to be stuck in this one model of, as we were discussing earlier, of what it means to be Jewish. Um, it, you didn't have to have this idealised image of, yeah, it, having to be in a certain language or having to be religious, you know, uh, religiously observant or having to, um, yeah, be sort of uh, whatever sort of conservative notions of Jewish identity you might have. Uh, in fact, we should be inventing new forms of Jewish identity, new forms of Jewish culture, uh, and they can exist around the world wherever Jews might might happen to be. Yeah, I love this part about the multilingualism. This is obviously something that um, distinguishes it quite a lot from the Soviet Yiddish case, um, or the Soviet Jewish anti-fascism um, that I'm studying, where it's very Yiddishist and only, <laughs> only Yiddishist. Um, so I loved reading about that, I think, um, yeah, that makes um, this tradition of anti-fascism really unique and powerful. So, but now finally, let's turn to the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee and kind of the role in the making of Australian Jewish anti-fascism. One clear example, I think, of the impact of um, the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee is just simply the name of one of the newspapers that you are engaging with, Unity, <clears throat> which is just simply the translation of Anikite, um, the, the newspaper of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. So yeah, please tell us all about the connection between them and maybe also the connection to popular frontism and what that actually is. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you probably, you know this better than I, than I do about the sort of uh, the, the genesis of Jewish anti-fascism and, uh, and the popular front. I mean, that's a sort of an interest. I, I think that, that is an interesting uh, point that we were discussing about maybe the difference between Soviet Jewish anti-fascism and um, how anti-fascism took off. 
around the world. As as you say, there was sort of this Yiddish, you know, Soviet, the anti-fascist committee Yiddish was absolutely central. But I think that the Jewish anti-fascists worldwide still took, I think, I think that what, well, you correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, it might be interesting, but I think that what was different about the Soviet Jewish anti-fascist committee was that suddenly Yiddish, of course, was central and important, but that it, they were tasked with uh, creating sort of Jewish solidarity worldwide um, for, uh, you know, the cause of the Soviet Union and the Red Army. And they, part of it was about validating uh, international Jewishness, which wasn't religious, and it, I don't think it needed to, it, it, it suddenly expanded outside of the bounds of just Yiddish, of Yiddish language Absolutely. as well. Yeah, so there was a sort of, and that so that's really the the the, the I think sort of the, the strong genesis of Jewish anti-fascism worldwide was suddenly you have this validation of Jewish culture um, and Jewish identity um, that wasn't just linguistically determined. It was sort of this 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 opening up point that you could that you could uh, try to understand um, Jewish culture in different ways. Okay, right. Re- return me to the to the question. <laughs> well, the question is simply: Is there a role of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee in the making of the Australian Jewish Anti-Fascism? So, for instance, um, you're talking about this one protagonist of yours who is a subscriber of Anikite, for instance. Um, so there's clear overlap, uh, and the ideas not to speak of this is very much in dialogue with each other um yeah and then i mean if we're already in the soviet union it would be also really interesting to hear about um kind of the connections to the soviet union even in the wake of the stalinist purges of of the jewish elite um how did they react um what was known etc yeah yeah, so there was a very strong connection, but I don't know. Um, so, for instance, the Jewish Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism was literally the Australian group founded in in Melbourne was literally started a month after the the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee in the Soviet Union. So, and I don't think they referenced it in their founding documents, but. To me, it's very clear that that was sort of the the impetus, and then you know, and then when they got around to, uh, so there was an, the publication called Unity Magazine, which is basically kind of the key source for my entire um, research. It was not an official publication of the Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism, but basically, and it, it was published in Sydney rather than Melbourne, where the the Jewish um, uh, Council was headquartered and the but there was a lot of overlap and um it 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 was a lot of ideological and cultural overlap um they were very strong supporters of each other and spoke about very similar ideas and the yeah unity um it was had had this they did talk about the jewish anti-fascist committee to a certain extent um and, and and reference their work, 
but I sort of had this thing which was un, which was a bit different to how the similar magazines and newspapers uh, talked about the Soviet Union. Um, uh, so the magazine that I referenced before, Jewish Life, um, which was the, the the one from the states, that uh, was a publication of um, the Communist Party, and it was very always extremely strong in in supporting the Soviet Union um, and defending uh, you know any <clears throat> purges or whatever um, any anti-semitism very strongly denied um, and in in Eastern Europe as well very you know it was just sort of Stalinist down the line whereas <clears throat> to a certain extent, the editor of Unity, Heim Bresniak, he was also a member of the Communist Party and he did sort of keep to to the line to a certain extent. But I think that they kind of knew that they... The magazines called Unity, they wanted to foster a sort of broader left consciousness, popular front style uh, um, alliance within the Jewish community and... By the at least by around yeah nineteen fifty um, you know it was kind of the Soviet Union became more and more on the nose so they did they de- did defend the Soviet Union but they didn't really go into details about what was happening in the Soviet Union and and for for Jews they didn't really go into um, Eastern Europe politics either i kind of assessed that they took a sort of lowest common denominator approach they didn't they didn't never criticize the soviet union but they also just sort of uh you know steered, steered away to other sort of more palatable uh um uh, politics and were trying to you know and for instance the you know politics around um West Germany and the failure of denazification um, and the growing Cold War there, that was sort of what they were uh, much more focused on and thought that they could gain, um, you know, significant Jewish uh, support through the wider community to, yeah, basically oppose um, remilitarization and um, the sort of rehabilitation of, of, of West Germany as part of the, the, the Cold War. So, yeah, it's an interesting uh, interesting relationship, I, I think. But, you know, it was sort of the other magazine that I focused on is Jewish Youth, which was the magazine of the Kadima Youth Organisation. And I think that their politics was very strongly aligned with um, Soviet Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. They were um, publishing, you know, works from... Uh, the famous writers associated with the the, the anti-fascist committee um, and writing about what was going on. There was a little bit uh, that they were publishing a little bit earlier than than Unity as well, sort of from 46, 47. So there was definitely that relationship. And, yeah, as you say, I found um, uh, ASIO, which is the intelligence organisation in Australia and and the the precursor as well, they were keeping tabs on uh, foreign magazines coming into and and left-wing magazines and magazines from the Soviet Union coming into Australia. And from those records, you could sort of trace some of the 
the the uh, the ideological sort of um, cross pollination and and dissemination that they were definitely. I, I maybe you know maybe you know this better than I do. I'm trying to work out you know the the magazine that they Heinekeit that they that the Soviet Anti Fascist Committee. There's sort of varying uh, opinions about how widely that was disseminated um, in the Soviet Union and and internationally. But anyway, they managed to get a, a copy of it, and it seems to me like even if there weren't very many copies going around the world. They still managed to make this uh, impact of this very definite sort of um, impact on Jewish communities worldwide. Um, yeah, definitely not enough copies, um, and it was definitely geared towards the international audience. So I think the highest point was um, ten thousand copies, and two thousand were circulated within the Soviet Union, I believe, um, and the rest would go abroad. Um, I think these are the numbers, but we also don't really know. Um, but definitely not enough. Um, everyone was c- complaining. <laughs> so yeah, so that's yeah, that's really interesting. That it was sort of yeah geared towards and um, they sort of prioritized the international audience as well. But yeah, it managed to ma- manage to certainly make an impact. And yeah, as, as I say, I think even mm-hmm. if only one or two copies came through to Melbourne. You know, they were passed around, like the people would go to the Kadima um, reading, you know, they had a, a reading lounge or whatever in a library and all these sort of international literature in multiple languages, particularly Yiddish, but were were there and, you know, that was sort of the, the site where people um, were strongly engaged with, with what was going on internationally, yeah. Yeah, this was also the case in the Soviet Union itself. So Polish Jews, for instance, their um, accounts of people gathering to read Enika together. Um, uh, yeah, and it going through kind of the community hand to hand because there were too little um, copies available. But yeah, kind of uh, indirect source of community building. It's very interesting. Um, and when... Michols and Pfeffer made their way to the US. Um, they wrote in their report that they saw an Enikite being um, sold either in Cairo or in Tehran. Um, and it was also sold out, of course. Um, so who knows if that's really if that's really the case, but yeah, very interesting. Um, but let's move from the Soviet Union uh, to settler colonialism in Israel, Palestine, and um, Australia. So um, you frame Jewish anti-fascism in relationship with settler colonialism, both in Israel, Palestine, and in Australia. And you say that both helped false promises, and I quote you here, so Zionism promised um, that an, an exclusivist nation-state premised on Palestinian dispossession was the only answer to anti-Semitism on the one hand, and Australian settler colonialism um, promised that uh, egalitarian and multi-ethnic national belonging was possible without addressing the attempted suppression of indigenous sovereignty. Um, So let's start with Israel-Palestine and maybe one of the big questions, what is settler colonialism and why is Israel-Palestine part of that formation? Mm. I mean yes, that's highly debated. Yeah. I think it's good to to lay it out why why this is actually the case. 
Yeah, 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 definitely. I won't give a I won't give a global history of um, settler colonialism, but I will say that um, basically, you know, a lot of the my uh, theorization um, about this is um, based on reading the work of um, the late Patrick Wolfe, who was sort of a very famous figure within um, in Australia and settler colonialism studies. And it's basically his theorization of settler colonialism that I take, and that is that um, you know basically it's a, it's a it's a form of colonialism where uh, the colonists arrive and they stay, they they set up shop, and um, with no intention of of leaving, and that it's a form of colonialism that's centrally premised on replacing uh, indigenous people on their land with settlers so from the colonist country so that's basically how i theorize uh what happened what happened what is happening um still in in palestine israel um that zionism is a form of settler colonialism and the objections to that are sometimes you know jews uh you know, there were refugees or um, they weren't all coming from the same country or um, there was no mother country for uh, um, that, that all the Jews came from, um, that they were improving the land, that they were um, actually, you know, they were trying to help uh, Arab-Palestinians and, you know, there was sort of a conflict and blah, blah, blah. But what I basically say is, well, all of that, well, not all of it is true, but some, some, some of that is true, um, but it doesn't actually stop the central fact being that, uh, that Zionism um, very specifically was about buying up land, um, purchasing land, and then forcing uh, uh, Indigenous Palestinians off their land and replacing um, them with Jewish settlers. It was a separatist, basically it was a separatist Jewish economy. It was a very uh, purposeful uh, program of Zionism um, that was about displacing Palestinians. So that's that's sort of the, yeah, that's, that's the basis of it. And um, I guess I kind of, I try to use that theorization to understand and critique how the Jewish left including the Jewish anti-fascists that I cover, um, engaged with uh, Zionism and engaged with politics, particularly around around 48 um, and around Israel because, yeah. Oh, you go. No, I mean, I, I think it's really good to have this clarification. I think this is now settled once and for all, this subject. Um, and, yeah, so... Explain to us the relationship or how um, Palestine-Israel plays a role in the history of Australian Jewish antifascism and post-war Australian Jewry more generally, um, and why this was important to include in the book. Yeah. I mean, it's very important, and um, it's one of those things where now I think Australian, well, probably up until very recently, it's sort of Australia's Jewish community was known as being the most Zionist in the world um, and, you know, very, very strongly pro-Israel and, um, you know, Israel is just a part of 
know, whether we like it or not, Israel is just a very strong part of how Australian Jews identify with being Jewish um, and how they, it's just a very strong part of um, Australian Jewish sort of political, cultural, uh, yeah, everything. <laughs> so, and, and, and I think there's this question of, well, how did that become the case? And, um, and, and what, and, and why? And Australian Zionism was, I think, always, it was more popular in Australia than in other countries, from what I can ascertain, like from the 30s onwards. Um, Whereas, you know, in other countries, I think it was much later that it sort of became a mainstream political position um, for um, Jewish communities to be um, completely supportive of of Zionism and and of Israel. and basically through the, in, uh, around 1945, um, the Soviet Union sort of softened its line on Israel and Zionism. And for various reasons, I guess strategic reasons, they uh, became much more sympathetic to um, the Jewish settlement in, in in Palestine and um, a little bit more supportive, not quite officially, but of um, Zionist politics. So yeah, so let's uh, talk about the role that Palestine Israel plays in the history of Australian Jewish anti-fascism and post-war Australian Jewry more generally, and maybe how how it also contributed to the demise of anti-fascism. Well, uh, yeah. So Australian Zionism was from the 30s onwards in Australia, popular and um, sort of increasingly so. And I think in a way that distinguishes it from other uh, Jewish communities around the world, it's sort of already in in the 30s had sort of, um, it wasn't quite mainstream, but it was a very strong um, uh, movement that was sort of already sort of gaining adherence. And then by the time that we get to post-war, I think you could say fairly safely say there was a Zionist consensus um, within Australian Jewish communities and that did, to a certain extent, include Jewish anti-fascists and the left. And Zionist maybe is the wrong term here, but let's say pro-Israel, pro-Yishuv um, uh, politics because Jewish anti-fascists uh, internationally kind of changed how they positioned themselves in line with how the Soviet Union positioned itself. And sort of from forty-five up until, well, definitely past forty-eight. Um, the Soviet Union reversed its sort of strident critique of uh, Zionism and tried to strategically ally itself with 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 Israel or with the the Jewish settlement. And so, Jewish anti so this was in some ways politically advantageous to um, Jewish anti fascists in Australia because they could team up with this other quite strong faction which was the Zionists, and um, over this sort of common 
support for Israel. And in fact, that the way that the Soviet Union and the way that the sort of international left thought of um, Israel and um, uh, Jewish sentiment during this time was, in fact, to understand it as part of an anti-imperialist struggle. So uh, it was particularly because, of course, there has been this long-standing uh, battle and which sort of escalated uh, into, you know, um, acts of terrorism and violence against um, the British military occupation um, in the struggle for independence. And, you know, there was this sort of long-running battle for, um, with uh, Britain about um, trying to open Palestine to unlimited Jewish migration. Now, in some, you know, the, that's sort of, I think, the way that it's still told in sort of Zionist historiography now that, you know, it was kind of this anti-imperial struggle. I mean, it was really... If you take a bit, just a slightly longer view, it of course wasn't at all like the the all the uh, Jewish settlement was facilitated by the British um, in the early part of the the twentieth century. Um, all the sort of yeah political economic settings were set up by the British. I think that's fair to say that they did not have a particularly coherent policy um, about uh, supporting Jewish settlement and. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's fairly clear that it was, uh, that the colonisation project was facilitated by the British. But in this period, there was this very, uh, in this immediate post-war period, there was this conceptualization of um, the Jewish struggle as part of an anti-imperialist struggle. And they drew, and Jewish anti-fascists and Zionists drew these comparisons with other decolonization struggles which were happening at the time. Jewish, so Jewish self-determination, Jewish independence was drawn into these sorts of ideas. But there was kind of this, they were still weren't up until 48 uh, and, and, and even after, Jewish anti-fascists did not see themselves as Zionists like we were talking about earlier, they had this idea of the dynamic futurity of Jews and Jewish existence, uh, being able to exist in whatever country Jews were and whatever language um, was available to them. Um, and they did not see sort of Israel as sort of the end point of, of, of Jewish history. Uh, so, but, so, and then in the lead up to um 48, there was sort of very strongly of the um, binationalist, uh, they, they were pushing a sort of binationalist position. They were against partition of Israel. Um, but then after the Declaration of Independence, they um, sort of were like, okay, well, that's the, that's the state of the world now. And, you know, they basically... In that moment, they were um, they were they were they were helping to facilitate public rallies in Australia in support of the Jewish state. Um, very strongly celebrating it. Unity was um, also you know celebrating the Jewish state. So, for a certain period, they became sort of indistinguishable from the very mainstream Zionist consensus. And then, but then, basically, by the time of uh, by around 1950 when the Cold War started to heat up 
um, there was that was when you know basically the Jewish left started to get a lot more criticism and it started to become very obvious that they had a very different idea of the future of the Australian Jewish community from sort of the mainstream uh, conservative Jewish uh, in, uh, establishment and um, more conservative um, people who were aligned with more conservative um, political parties or parts of political parties in Australia um, and the Zionists because um, basically it uh, when Israel signed uh, the um, reparations agreement with um, West Germany, it was not, uh, it was basically the significant rehabilitation of um, West Germany's image on the global stage. And it kind of meant that Jewish communities were meant to fall into line around the world in accepting the legitimacy of um, West German state and um, uh, seizing sort of all criticism and basically falling into line with this sort of Cold War um, consensus politics um, and which Israel, you know, this, this, the, it was very clear from that point that um, the Israel was not at all aligned with the Soviet Union and that it was very strongly aligned with um, emerging pro-US uh, imperialism led by, by, by the United States. So the... So that meant basically the Zionists turned against the Jewish anti-fascists because the Jewish anti-fascists were still trying to push strong campaign against um, West Germany. And essentially that was sort of like what I analyse as this real turning point within the Jewish community So, and Jewish community politics is that the suddenly they were, the Jewish anti-fascists were isolated and Zionism became aligned with uh, loyalty to um, uh, the Australian state, loyalty to US imperialism and um, the very strong politics of anti-communism at the time. Um, And the Jewish left were tarred with this, um, you know, anti-communist sort of brush and were suddenly their form of Jewishness was seen as... um, inauthentic or bogus and not the correct type of Jewishness uh, that, that that needed to um, be formed um, in order to align with both Zionism and this sort of Cold War political order. Great. Yeah, this it was a really <clears throat> great read, a very important chapter for me and my research. So, again, thank you for all your work. Um, so in the last two chapters, you turn to Australian settler colonialism um, and you talk about the place of um, Jewish anti-fascists that were, of course, all migrants, um, the place of them within Australian settler colonialism and how they tried to politically respond to settler colonialism um, and culturally. Um, so, yeah, lay it out for us. Yeah. Well, it's one of those interesting things where I was trying to find this political history of Jews in being in solidarity with Aboriginal uh, people in Australia. And I didn't exactly find it. And um, which is in contrast to 
you know, histories of um, sort of liberal and 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 Jewish left in the United States. There's very strong um, history of uh, alliance with um, civil rights movement. But the in the the case in Australia, the Jewish Council and sort of their allies were sort of keyed in to a certain extent with um, changes in the Australian political landscape um, after World War II in, in Melbourne and uh, in um, the Northern Territory and in um, the Pilbara in Western Australia. There was this really strong emergence of, um, uh, of an Aboriginal um, industrial and political campaigns um, and uh, in Melbourne, there was a uh, formation of an uh, organisation called Council for Aboriginal Rights. And the Jewish Council did send a delegate. And But um, I tried to find if there was sort of a more extensive political history. I couldn't exactly find it, but we do know very strongly that the uh, Communist Party um, in Australia at that point, post-World War II, and as a result of the, the strength of these industrial and political campaigns by Aboriginal people, strongly took up the cause of Aboriginal people and disseminated the cause and were campaigning around it all, all around Australia and, and definitely in, uh, in Melbourne and Sydney. And it's sort of through those networks that it became uh, on the agenda for Jewish writers and artists um, so I particularly look at Pincus Goldhar, who was a um, very famous Yiddish poet, uh, um, Judah, Judah Watton, who was a um, famous Jewish writer, um, and Yossel Bergner, who was a, I don't think at the time I wouldn't have said that he was that famous, but now he, he's become more he's become more famous in in recent years, um, and uh, yeah, they're sort of how they engage with these questions around the Jewish uh, position in Australia in relationship to Aboriginal people and relationship to settler colonialism. So, uh, oh, and also the writer David David Martin, who was also a very famous Australian um, writer, uh, Jewish writer and poet. And they all had different approaches, um, but it was very clear that what, was happening through the strength of these Aboriginal campaigns and through the sort of dissemination uh, of them through the Communist Party and their sort of associated networks was really putting it on the agenda for, for Jews, if and particularly for Jewish anti-fascists. If Jewish anti-fascists understood that their struggle had to be uh, in concert in solidarity with oppressed people worldwide with con- and against racism and against colonisation, they had to address uh, what it meant in Australia um, in relationship to Aboriginal people. So I think that some of the best works that they produced really did understand that Australian Jews were both subject to anti-Semitism and subject to a particular form of racism within Australia, but also were, through no fault of their own, uh, involuntarily in a certain sense, um, and whether they liked it or not, 
settlers on Australian land, as all non-Indigenous people are in Australia. So they had to understand, and I think that someone like Judah Watton made great um, strides in actually uh, understanding this through his written works and through um, plays that he that he wrote. That um, there was a that the forms of racism were actually different um, um, because of the material basis of those forms of racism, and that there was this uh, Jewish position where you could either side. Uh, sort of unquestionably reproduce settler norms and settler colonialism in Australia very easily through 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 assimilating into their settler cultural political uh, polity. Or you could um, understand that Jews Jews were settlers in Australia, but through uh, uh, basically breaking with those forms of political assimilation, and through uh, having this idea that you that anti-Semitism was a form of racism and that to defeat anti-Semitism we need to defeat racism more generally and to defeat racism more generally we need to defeat colonialism and that involves also defeating Australian settler colonialism, which was producing this racism against Aboriginal people, um, that, yeah, the, that you need to forge very strongly these alliances of solidarity and understand um, the the particular racism that was facing Aboriginal people, so that's kind of what I try to try to work through in those um, two chapters. Great, thank you. Yeah, you did a great job. Um, so this leads me with my final question, which is: um, How might Australian Jewish anti-fascist thought and activism help us in the current moment? Very good question. I think that I was trying to. Um, work out some, I think just inevitably trying to work through some current political issues and things that have come up for me in my political life and activism through um, trying to investigate Jewish anti-fascism. And I did find that it was uh, applicable, like that there, you know, there's, I think sometimes there's a tension between certain forms of um, identity politics and a sort of more universalistic left um, politics and there was a lot of contention about how exactly that uh, should work in Jewish communities as well recently, that Jewish communities, you know, there's this conservative strand of Jewish thinking that thinks that identity politics has turned against Jews and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but um, I kind of found that Jewish anti-fascists had this very particular idea that, um, in order to fight racism, you need a strong Jewish consciousness, but that Jewish consciousness was not about shutting off solidarity with other people or sort of own, uh, self-reliance or self-determination or um, sort of an exclusivist model. Um, it was, in fact, saying, well, you know, it's through... Uh, building Jewish consciousness and Jewish internal solidarity, it's actually this method or or it should be this method of strengthening ourselves in order to uh, participate and more fully in wider society and make those strong alliances. And I still think that that as sort of a model of identity 
um, and how we need to deploy certain forms of identity um, and belonging in our struggle against racism sort of makes a lot of sense um, that, you know, we, 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 we do need to um, be strong and, 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 and uh, develop uh, things like Jew- a Jewish consciousness and be proud of Jewish culture in, and that's part of a struggle against anti-Semitism, which is still an ongoing struggle. But it should not be seen as, you know, the, the, the Zionist answer is not uh, going to get us very far. We get stuck if, if we follow it to sort of a nationalist exclusivist uh, conclusion, um, we end up in this sort of a dead end um, and that sort of our models of how to build internal Jewish solidarity should always be about also opening up and making us um, sort of wider and, uh, and, and and relating our struggles and relating our, and our culture and relating everything about this yeah, dynamic futurity to the struggles of other people um, and other oppressed people and, and the global uh, international struggle against racism and colonialism. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was a perfect ending to our conversation. Um, so this was Max Kaiser, and we were talking about his book, Jewish Antifascism and the False Promise of Settler Colonialism, which came out with Palgrave in 2022. In my view, this book is a mandatory read. Um, go read it, use it in your classrooms, and buy it for your libraries. Thank you again, Max, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Um, this is Miriam Shirley schultz for the New Books Network. Seid gesund.